You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Welcome to the UI podcast and this special episode where we will use the fifth anniversary of the Umbrella Movement protests to take stock of what is happening in Hong Kong right now. To shed some light, uh, I am joined by our in-house expert research fellow Tim Rulig, and my name is Ilva Pettersson. Tim, five years ago, more than one million people occupied three districts of the city for almost three months in protests against an electoral reform that they regarded as fake democracy. Today, we have protests in Hong Kong again. Are the protesters out for the same reasons as they were in 2014? Yes and no. Uh, On the one hand, the electoral question is not at the fore at this point anymore. In 2014, it was all about electoral democracy, and this time, the reason people hit the streets was the extradition bill. Uh, The fear that people in Hong Kong would be extradited to to mainland China and come from uh, an independent judiciary that we have in Hong Kong to uh, a regime that has not a free uh, and independent judiciary in mainland China. But at the same time, I think there are clear interlinks and it is clear that it is also a continuation of both. Because uh, after all, it's all about a principle that is called one country, two systems, that China has promised to Hong Kong uh, until the year 2047. Uh, That is the legacy of the British colonial rule that ended in 1997. And it promised Hong Kong uh, a far-reaching autonomy for 50 years. And people are worried and were worried in 2014 that their autonomy, their ability to rule their own uh, constituency, to rule their own city, and to live according to independent uh, uh, and free liberal principles is undermined. So there are linkages. uh, It is clearly a continuation, but uh, the reason or the occasion why people hit the streets is different. Right. You already you already touched on this, but what has changed? What aspects have changed, and what have remained the same? You would say in the ways that the the protests manifest themselves. Uh, well, interestingly, I think we see in both protests that uh, it's driven by young people. Uh, I think this is a very uh, clear continuation from two thousand and fourteen. Uh, And what is really interesting and striking about this is that young people are uh, protesting that have never experienced British colonial rule. So they know Hong Kong as a Chinese city for all their life. It has been ruled by China. But nonetheless, it is these people who seem to be most committed to protecting uh, Hong Kong rights, civil liberty rights and, and, and striving for democracy. This is clearly a continuation of it. Tactics, though, have somehow uh, changed. Uh, Back in 2014, the main protests were uh, essentially to occupy three districts of Hong Kong. Uh, This time, it's more rallies, usually during weekends. Um, So this has definitely changed. And it's a bit of a lesson learned here as well, in terms that the protesters realize that it's quite difficult to sustain protests staying out 24 7 uh, in the streets and still keep up the spirit that has worked tremendously well in 2014 but they felt they couldn't sustain it for more than two and a half three months and this time they say well we are going to hit the streets each and every weekend why are the protesters not satisfied with chinese rule do they go as far as to demand independence 
Some do, uh, others not. I think what all of them have really in common is, as I said before, to protect sort of the the uh, genuine identity of Hong Kong. I think they it, it's sort of related in three terms. It's A, it's political. They want to uh, self-govern their own city. And this is obviously very distinct from mainland China that is ruled by the Chinese Communist Party. Um, B, Economically, I think they see that Hong Kong is at least relatively in decline if you compare it to China. So this narrative for a long time or, or this confidence that things would improve, would get better, are lost. And at a time when uh, China is taking control of the city, so economically they are worried about the well-being of the city and they fear too much dependence from China. And I think the third aspect where they are striving for their own sort of way is uh, more culturally. And here I think it is interesting to see that many Hong Kongers realize that 150 years of colonial rule have not gone unnoticed. Hong Kong's identity is quite different from China. It's a Chinese city and nonetheless it is different and they want to protect this. So I think there is a number of people who say well in 2014 we haven't achieved anything so, so we have learned as part of China we cannot change uh, Hong Kong, we cannot preserve it as it is, so we ask for independence. But I think the vast majority understands that independence is nothing they can ever achieve and they are not calling for this. Nonetheless, they want to be protected against too much Chinese, mainland Chinese influence. Speaking of the general population, what is the general support for, for the protests? And also uh, for the protests, but also for the means that they use? Um, Good question. I think uh, we have to differentiate here. When it comes to democracy, uh, we see quite constant support of around 60-65% of the population in favor of the pro-democracy movement. Uh, around one-third, uh, third to 40% uh, are actually siding more with pro-Beijing voices. Uh, that does not necessarily mean that they say we are against democracy, but what they say is, well, we live, they take more of a pragmatic perspective here. They say, well, what we need is to align with, with Beijing. We need to, to accommodate Beijing. So it makes no sense to call for a, a Western-style democracy. When it comes to the extradition bill, we have seen a much uh, broader support. Here I don't have numbers, but if you consider it, 2 million, up to 2 million have hit the streets in a city of 7.5 million inhabitants. And consider there's babies included in, in those statistics. There's elderly that may not be able to hit the streets. So that means it's an incredible number, 2 million out of 7.5. And, and since there's not much support in mainland China for Hong Kong, you can really consider those 2 million being inhabitants of Hong Kong. So that is really impressive. So the extradition bill, I think, even for many people who usually don't support the pro-democracy movement, went a step too far. That they felt was really eroding the, the essence of, of uh, Hong Kong. When it comes to protest tactics, I don't have statistics here to say how much support there is for a more violent uh, protest than in 2014. Uh, what is interesting is that the, the people who protest themselves seem to be much more ready to, to support violence than they have been five years ago. Speaking of which, uh, that brings us to the question of uh, the police, uh, police response. Is the reaction from the Hong Kong and Beijing government similar? And what can we expect there? 
Yeah, well, in 2014, I think uh, the Hong Kong police and the Hong Kong government have essentially had a very straightforward strategy to wait out the protests, to simply do nothing and wait until the protesters are tired and go home. And that uh, refers back to what I said earlier, that indeed after 79 days happened. I mean, protesters had been out on the streets 24-7. They were simply tired. Uh, and so they went home, there was not much resistance, and the umbrella movement ended. Uh, so, and, and the Hong Kong government and the police, I think, would have liked to do exactly the same this time again, but it has not worked. It has not worked uh, because if you do uh, go only to rallies if every weekend, of course, you can sustain it longer. Mm-hmm. Second, um, it, I think Hong Kongers are even more committed than five years ago, and that is a lesson from the umbrella movement. So they feel, well, we really have to do something, uh, and this is why we have to sustain the protest. But most importantly, I think um, the situation for the Beijing government is different. On the 1st of October, they want to celebrate the 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. And one of the main issues about this is to tell again, retell the story that the Chinese Communist Party has achieved incredible successes, including overcoming the legacy of colonialism. So Hong Kong is an important nationalist or nationalistic symbol, and they want to have calm and peace here. Um, So this time, they simply also did not have the time to wait out the protest. They were more committed to end this. I think that has led to... um, trying out more forceful reactions, warning protesters that the People's Liberation Army from China could step in. I mean, they were not as clear saying this, but it was pretty clear what they wanted, which what kind of message they wanted to convey. Mm-hmm. And also, um, they have uh, sort of tried to bring in more force from, in terms of the, the Hong Kong police to... to um, get away with the protests, but also protesters were more willing and more ready, I think, to use violence, since some have said, well, the lesson you you have told us in 2014 was with peaceful protests, you achieve nothing. Mm. I think this is why sort of we see more violence, though I'd still say it is quite significant if you have two millions out of the street, it's very difficult to control such masses, and this is not, so, so, maybe there's not that much violence than, than as we tend to think if we see the pictures. They are very powerful, but it's not that much violence. So you don't think it's likely that there will um, be an intervention? Well, um, yeah, I think it's unlikely. Mm-hmm. It's likelier than in 2014 yeah. uh, for for several reasons, but I think it is still unlikely. And I think uh, one reason is, of course, that uh, China wants to keep up the trust from international investors. Hong Kong, they also, first they want to have uh, Hong Kong being a prosperous city, but also mainland China is profiting from, from uh, Hong Kong. Um, and if they intervene, investors might be scared off. The second is Taiwan. Taiwan is going to the ballot boxes next year, uh, and they fear that the rather China-critical uh, president will be re-elected, and obviously if there's much force uh, that would boost her narrative to be anti-Chinese, so they fear that. But third, and this is, I think, maybe maybe most important here, is uh, the geopolitical aspect of it. Uh, China has been waiting for 20 years or more 
that after the Cold War, Europe would become a more independent actor and that the transatlantic alliance would be not as close as it used to be. And they never understood that. The Soviet threat is a way, why is Europe still sticking to the US? And they thought, uh, they talked about the multipolar world here. And I think that's what they see as conducive to China's rise itself, if the US is not that strong. And in times of Donald Trump, they ultimately finally see something like this happening uh, that they've been waiting for so long. And if now they interfere into Hong Kong, they will obviously re-strengthen the transatlantic alliance. And this is why, surprisingly, in and in a very rare occasion, I think, Europe's stance is, really matters to China. This is not happening very often. And what has Europe said or done so far? Not much. Um, I think uh, the European Parliament has probably been the most outspoken uh, adopting a resolution uh, in the summer. Um, we also see that uh, several governments uh, seem to convey the message to Beijing mainly uh, in behind closed doors, but uh, Angela Merkel has said something, um, really only something, <laughs> not much. Uh, Nonetheless, I think it is quite clear if you talk to policymakers in Brussels and around the continent, by the way, also in Washington, D.C., that in case of a large-scale uh, violent crackdown, both Europe and uh, the U.S. would act. Uh, they would coordinate. It would come with economic retaliation. Um, so uh, I think that China is aware of the situation, even though Europe is not very outspoken, not uh, raising the issue that much. What we see, though, is that I think the European press is keeps track on that, and that is very different from 2014, which puts pressure on democratic uh, policymakers in Europe. So I think the public awareness, the public discourse uh, about the protests in Hong Kong is really crucial for Hong Kong protesters at this point. So, Tim, what do you see as the way forward for this protest that we see now? It is very difficult at this point to see how this is going to end. Because Beijing has actually compromised quite significantly in the sense they have withdrawn the extradition bill. Uh, and surprisingly, I think the protesters don't see that as a success. They still believe they have not really achieved much. Uh, and the reason might be that they don't trust the Hong Kong government. So what is really needed here is a process uh, with several components to come to sort of a compromise. At this point, it's really difficult to see where this is going to end. The most likely at this point is probably that uh, they wait out the protest and at some point uh, they simply wave out. But uh, we don't see this happening at the moment. And China seems indeed to be ready to let the protests uh, going even on 1st of October, something that we I have not expected for a long time. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we will see a violent crackdown uh, in end of September. But at this point, I'm quite optimistic it's not happening, hopefully. The real question for me is what should be done. And here, I think both sides can do something. Um, I think the Hong Kong government, first of all, needs to uh, start and make sure it is sincere and conveys the message it's sincere about the dialogue process. It needs to bring everyone to the table. Uh, and the Hong Kong government has actually tried to do so. It has said so, but it has not been picked up by the protesters because they felt it was not sincere. 
So the Hong Kong government needs to ask itself what can they do to really make sure people trust them again and engage. And one aspect is probably that uh, the current chief executive, Carolam, resigns. But a second aspect is also that uh, they need to hammer out uh, room for compromise on electoral reform, I think. And there is room. Uh, there have been proposals in 2014. They've been taken off the table by an interpretation issued in Beijing. It's uh, known as the 31st August decision. And even though Beijing does not like to hear it, I think they should take back the 31st August decision simply to free up room for compromise. And the protesters, I think, uh, all they can do is strive, of course, for international support, or try to be ready to talk with the Hong Kong government and identify when they are sincere. And third, try to stick to peaceful means of the protests again. And one way forward would uh, be maybe something that we've seen in 2014 that uh, is an initiative called Occupy Central with Love and Peace. And over months, um, led by uh, a law scholar from Hong Kong University, his name is Benny Tai. Uh, the Hong Kong population was taught in civil disobedience and how to protest peacefully. That might be a way forward for protesters and the governments in both Hong Kong and Beijing. Thank you so much, Tim. Thank you for clarifying this for us. Uh, I'm sure we will have reasons to, to talk about these things again. Thank you. My pleasure. Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews. <laughs>